Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. A slight difference today. We're actually going to speak to the author of a book that's just been published. And that author is Shane O'Mara. Shane is the Professor of Experimental Brain Research and the Principal Investigator and Director of the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. Shane has written three books in the past, Why Torture Doesn't Work, A Brain for Business, and one that really appeals to Chris and myself as avid walkers in praise of walking. Shane also has a very interesting Substack site called Brain Pizza, and I would strongly recommend that to anybody who's sort of interested in the brain and how it impacts on our everyday lives in a very user-friendly way. Shane has just published a new book, just been published by the Bodley Head in London, which is part of the Penguin Random House Group. The new book is called Talking Heads, The New Science of How Conversation Shapes Our Worlds. So we want to discuss that with Shane to get his view on it. Having read it, it's, it's a complicated subject. There is no doubt about that. Uh, but I, I guess Shane is doing to the brain and neuroscience what Stephen Hawking did with physics and astrophysics and all the rest. So it, it tries to bring it down to a level that um, we can all understand. The book is, as I see it, it's basically a survey of the science of human connection and communication from neurons to nations. One of the premises is that we are social animals and talking is a defining part of what makes us human. Chatting with friends or debating the future, we move through life in a state of near constant dialogue. I'm quoting you here, Shane. The starting point would be, you know, what are the key messages you want to convey in this latest publication? Thank you for that very generous introduction first. It's the first time I've been uh, <laughs> compared to Stephen Hawking, which uh, makes me slightly quake. So the, the kind of the key message that I, I, I kind of want to get across are, is maybe twofold. One is the we humans are complex and the world is a complex place uh, and we should embrace that complexity. So that's kind of message number one. And then message number two 
is that uh, we see many things in the world as inevitable. And if I might uh, use that word in a slightly different way, actually many things are evitable. Uh, we can change things if we want. Many of the restrictions that we impose upon ourselves are in fact arbitrary constructions of our interactions. And we can do things in a new way. We can think about the world in a new way. We don't have to be burdened by the way we have always done things because that is the way they have been done. So th those are kind of two abstract messages. I guess we'll get into the the, the, the nuts and bolts uh, in the conversation. If I might pick you up on that very first point that you made there, Shanks, I think that's key to a big part of your book, is your, your the words that you used there was, we should embrace complexity. Um, my takeaway, and it, it, forgive me if I've misinterpreted some of the words in your book, is that's precisely what we don't do, and that we uh, acquire our memories, our beliefs, from a whole variety of sources, not least our own personal and collective histories. And we often cling to simplicity in a way that can be really dangerous sometimes. It can be really quite harmful. It can be harmless at times. But our desire, our mental cognitive processes that lead us to cling to, to simplicities, to fictions about the past and therefore about the present and the future, which you talked about a lot, means that we do not for all sorts of strange reasons, which I don't fully understand, uh, embrace complexity, and you think that we should. Is that is that a fair summary of at least part of the book? Yeah, that, that's very fair. And uh, let me uh, drag in uh, any, uh, a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize for Economics for a moment, uh, Daniel Kahneman. Uh, he famously draws a distinction between system one thinking and system two thinking. Uh, system one is this real rapid boom, boom, boom thing that we do, our, our first impulse to answer something. But we also have uh, the capacity to engage in system two thinking. That is, we, be, we can be reflective, we can embrace complexity. And I, I think, you know, if we, if we look at our social media world at the moment, what it is, is one of, of the first thing that comes to the top of your head, you bang out. And people respond to that as if that's a meaningful way of interpreting how you think about the world. When actually, if you were to sit back and say, well, actually, I'm going to write a considered 500 words and embrace some evidence where this is concerned, your, your tweet might not be exactly the same thing. Um, so we, we humans are capable of doing these two things. And the, the lesson of, of historians is that we can. Our system one understanding of our history is just as you've described it. It, it. It's very gist driven. We pull little bits of it out. We don't embrace the complexity of the past. And we don't think that actually, when we look back at our history, we have to look, choose a lens to see the evidence of history through. But historians do this all the time. And you know, uh, historians get into trouble all the time for saying, well, what you used to think about, I don't know, let's say the Cromwellian invasions, isn't quite right. Those two kinds of ways of thinking rub up against each other and then, and they generate friction. But it, it's a, an understandable way, uh, given our evolution, you know, if you're out in the African plains and you see a, a yellow thing moving in the bush over there, do you want to take a lot of time to think about whether it's an antelope or a tiger or do you want to run? <laughs> you're going to run. I, uh, you, you mentioned something there that uh, makes me smile because one of the things that I think, uh, and I speak here very much as an amateur observer of, of a lot of the social and other sciences that always seem to be at this point a little bit reductive and that they explain a lot of our behaviours in terms of when we used to run around the savannah 
And I always ask the question, have we not evolved since then? Or are we still completely dominated by these things that we acquired, these traits, these characteristics, these genetic codings, when we were running around the savannah bashing each other and antelopes over the hedge with sticks? That goes back to this point about complexity and simplicity, which is that why haven't we evolved to the point where we can say, for example, um, we know the world is a very complicated place. We know from science, we know from history, we know from other so- social and other hard so- and soft sciences that, that there is radical uncertainty out there. And clinging to simple truths, simple beliefs that we know are ultimately going to be proved to be false can lead us into an awful lot of trouble. And a more productive, healthier, more civilized way of thinking about life, the universe and what surrounds it is that to admit, A, we don't understand much of it, B, it is very, very complicated, and that clinging to simplicities gets us into trouble, and we need a new way of thinking, a new way of interacting with each other that is based on radical uncertainty, rather than believing that, frankly, cult-like beliefs, um, which is what an awful lot of us do cling to. It, and so my question, which is about relates to your point about going back to when we were running around the savannah. Why do we always say that we do what we do because of what we evolved into all those thousands of years ago, but haven't seemed to evolve a better way of being so far anyway? Or maybe evolution takes longer than that. So that that's a, a kind of a complicated question. And in one sense, I agree with everything you say. In another sense, I, I disagree with at least some of it. So it's clearly the case that we have the same kinds of impulses uh, you know, we need to survive, we need to avoid predation, uh, we need to find sources of food, we need to find sources of shelter, we need to find succor with others. That's how humans prospered, uh, by trusting in our groups, by trusting in our tribes. We grew up uh, as a species in a, in a resource-poor environment. And through education, through culture, through the Industrial Revolution, through the Green Revolution, We've created a world where really there's very little want. You know, we can feed the planet many times over if we choose, uh, but we still have these impulses in the back of our mind, uh, which are really hard to get away from, that it could all go away. We do still cling to our tribes. If you think about why people behave in many of the ways that they do, it's to do not with incentives in the environment. It's got to do with things like identity. It's got to, to do with things like group membership. It's to do with things like defining in-groups against out-groups. I am a member of this party and therefore I will defend this party irrespective of whether it violates my core principles or not. A great example, and it's easy to engage in, in, in Trump bashing, which I'm not going to do here, but uh, is to ask the people who are committed to a MAGA view of the world, is your view one of supporting the principles of the US Constitution or is it one of supporting the man? What you will see is lots of people identify with the individual and not with the more abstract principles as they're laid down in a a constitutional document. And I, I think that tension is always going to be there. One of the kind of arguments that I make in the book is uh, that when we, we try and resolve this, we're going to bump up against the way our brains are constructed. There's, there's an old joke, I think, about Bertrand Russell, the, the, the mathematician and philosopher, who you, where uh, it used to be said of him that uh, he would say, the problem with humanity is that we're in the main, we can be very irrational. So all we need to do is be rational. And uh, actually, that's not how it works <laughs> at all. That would be my response. Why? Aren't, I mean, I, suppose it, I, I just went through a very long-winded thing and saying, why aren't we more rational? 
I think, again, an argument that you can make, and I think it's a reasonable one, is that uh, there's no need to be. Rationality is expensive. Cleaving to your group is a, is a shortcut. We are cognitive misers. Our brains cost a lot metabolically to run. And you don't want to spend an awfully long time every day thinking about things. What we do is we are, as the, as the phrase is, we're epistemically dependent. We depend on others all the time. The, the simple example I give in the book is an elder saying to a child, don't eat those yellow berries, they're poisonous. The child doesn't know if they're poisonous. The elder may never have run the experiment to test whether they are, but we trust the other person because it's a good heuristic. It makes life simple uh, because you have so many other things to be doing. Can, can I just ask you, Shane, in the context of being a member of a group, in our world of economics, um, we tend to see a lot of ideologically driven perspectives. You know, if you're a left-wing economist, that's all you will ever come out with, or likewise with a right-wing economist. Are we neurologically capable of actually analyzing every situation on its own merits and not be blinded by being member of an ideological group? Yeah, so I, I think economics as a social science is kind of weird. I'm a left-wing neuroscientist. I'm, I might be a neuroscientist with left-wing or right-wing beliefs, but uh, my interpretation of a brain imaging experiment doesn't depend on the uh, my belief set. Economics maybe is a, is a domain where there's maybe a lot of unconscious capture that people move to it for other reasons and then use it to bolster policy positions that they've already got priors in favour of. The, the, the problem that economics has is a fundamental one is that when you have a given set of data or that describes a particular phenomena, you know, something might be going up, something might be going down, is that the number of, of possible available explanations for that given data set is very large. And so that attracts uh, people who are very statistically minded to try and discover the truth, uh, to see if the data can reveal something about the truth. But it will also attract the ideologues who will understand that if the, if the data can be explained in any one of a number of ways, it can be explained by the fact that you know all unemployed people are lazy and that if only we allow market forces to work, everything will be fine. Or, or the Laffer curve. <laughs> Or, or the Laffer curve. The Laffer curve, you know, does have an element, like all great lies, it has an element of truth, truth uh, lurking yeah. somewhere within it, and so on and so forth. That That's the, the fundamental problem, is that we, we have multiple explanations for unique phenomena, and it, it can attract very reasonable, decent mathematical types to try and explain that data properly, and it can attract all the, the ideological nut jobs out there. One of the things I wanted to explore with you, Shane, was there's a lot in the book about memory and belief. And in a way, I think that it almost becomes at times a, a tract on philosophy as it is on neuroscience in the, a, a lot of epistemics there. And that, of course, is a branch of philosophy and an ancient one at that. And before I even read your book and, and all its words on memory, which I was nodding along to most of the time, I, as I've become older. I've, I've come to realize just how uh, unreliable memory is personally. Speaking very personally, one of my favorite party pieces is to tell the story of one of the m most incredible moments of my life. Um, and at this point, people expect you to talk about, you know, getting at your degree ceremony or the birth of your children or whatever. And all of those things are true, of course. If my children, in the unlikely event that they're listening to this, that, that being present at their birth was the most important thing in my life. But the thing that I talk about the most was the first time I ever saw Led Zeppelin. That was in 1975 at their last concert of five gigs at Earl's Court. 
And for years and years and years, I used to tell this story about how the concert started. And that in those days, there was an, a disc jockey called Alan Freeman. And I would tell this story that Freeman came onto the stage, bang on at eight o'clock, the time the concert started, and just came on, held his hands up and said, ladies and gentlemen, we are here tonight because we have got taste and walked off again. And the place goes nuts and Led Zeppelin start with rock and roll. And I told this story for years. I told this story for years in front of people who were with me that night. And they would all nod and they would all say, absolutely, what a moment that was, Chris. Wasn't it fantastic? And then, thanks to the joys of YouTube, that very concert in its entirety appeared on YouTube a couple of years ago. And so I'm able to look it up. It was the sound desk recording. And do you know what? Alan Freeman comes on stage and doesn't do what I just said he did. It's different. It's not how I remember it. And so that, and for all sorts of other reasons, I've come to one of my stock phrases that I use with people now, particularly when talking about business and management, is that memory is a very unreliable friend. And I think that comes across in your book very well. But it, this then goes back to my question about why we rely on it so much if it is so unreliable. Why haven't we evolved to the point where we are able all to say to each other, these beliefs and behaviors that arise directly from our memories, we need to be very careful. We need to, we need to realize that they could be based on very flimsy foundations, and yet we do cling to them, don't we? Yeah, and Shane, if I may interject before you answer that question, um, and I'm not going to talk about my first Bob Dylan concert, okay, but there's a quote in the book from you saying how memories are transmitted from one person to another through conversation allows us to learn from each other quickly and easily. So Chris has described the imperfection of memory there. Does that feed into the whole untruth? And if I may, there's, there's a quote from George Orwell in 1984 where he says there was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you are not mad. And that quote came to mind when I was reading a passage in your book saying that conversations with the corrosively conspiracy minded are impossible to navigate with their doom loops of circular logic unmoored from empirical world, whether their focus is as relatively harmless as UFOs or as deadly as anti-vaxxers. And you mentioned Trump there a second ago. I mean, do people like Trump consciously or unconsciously use the power of the brain to drive this untruth agenda? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot there. If I if I start with Chris first and then I, I, I'll come on to uh, you, Jim. So first of all, memory is frail. And we've known this, but humans have invented means since time immemorial to get around the frailty of our memory. We do not rely on memory for units of account. Uh, we write things down. We invented currency for that reason. Uh, money has been around as a, as a kind of an external memory for us, I guess, forever. Um, uh, we, we figured out all sorts of other ways. We invented writing in this country. We had Ogham going back whenever it was, eight or 10,000 years ago. We have hieroglyphics going back even further. Um, we have invented means to circumvent the problem with our memories. Uh, and, and we've done so very consciously and very deliberately. We have rituals uh, in tribal societies. You know, there are marks placed 
on warriors uh, for the, the the numbers of kills, and you can only get those in a particular time and associated with a particular ceremony. There are, I won't say invariant, but there are means of propagation of stories through generations which are reasonably unvarying. So if you look at the work of folklorists in terms of story transmission over generations, they tend not to vary an awful lot uh, because they rely on structures to do with rhyming and other things that are easily transmissible and from one person to another. And of course, you know, if you, if you think, again, just in an Irish context for a moment, uh, we would always have had a, a filiate or a poet whose job it was, was to, to remember and transmit stories onward. And this is not a uniquely Irish thing. This is something that is a feature of, of tribal and, and group life, that uh, we do know that our memories are frail. I think individually the problem arises where we have terrible confidence in our memory and are, we're unwilling to allow that to be subject to empirical tests. Uh, there are lots and lots of examples of this in the court system where people have been 100% certain that person X committed a crime. They've identified them. And then you get DNA evidence to show that actually that's not correct. And there's a, there's a dramatic example just recently in the US of the writer Alice Sebald, who was assaulted terribly, I think about 20 odd years ago. And she identified a guy. I was absolutely certain it was that guy. But it turns out on DNA testing that what he had said at the time that he was elsewhere and it wasn't him, turns out to be true and it was somebody else. And we've, we've, we find this repeatedly, that we should be much more conscious of how easily contaminable our memories are. And court systems have known this for generations. We've just had a case in the UK only in the last 10 days of a guy that, right. hanged up for 17 years. Years, yeah. For a crime um, he did not commit. Commit, exactly. And this is why third-party evidence is really important and... and you know, there are rules of evidence that have evolved uh, to do with leading questions and things like this. They're hard won. If you, if, if you were running a show trial in uh, the USSR in the 1930s, rules of evidence didn't matter. <laughs> you know, what, what you wanted was a confession and you got a confession by beating it out of somebody. And that validated the legal process. But we, but we know when we stand back, if you were to design a legal process that pivots around memory, you wouldn't design it in that kind of way. We, I think we do know our individual memories are frail. And of course, we now have the phrase, well, that's wrong. I've just Googled it. We've also, I think, done something which is underestimated in its importance for giving us a standard for truth, which is the evolution of Wikipedia over the, the past uh, 20 odd years. You know, when you look up an article in Wikipedia, most of the time, it's at least as reliable as any other encyclopedia you will look up, and often very much more so. And you can test the sources of evidence, and you can see the live discussion between editors about, well, is this true? What is your evidence to support that? And that kind of empirically driven conversation sitting uh, availably there is, is really, really important. Now, the problem is, and this comes to, to Jim's point, very often our conversations are not empirically driven. Engineers have to be empirically driven. You can't design railways based on principles that are pulled out of the air. Uh, accountants can't just make numbers up or they will go to jail and companies will fail. Uh, neuroscientists can't just make up brain images. It's just not going to happen. But in arenas where there are competitions for status, 
for belonging and also for resourcing, because there will be re- rewards for being a, a member of a tribe. They might be financial um, or they might be social. There's, there's lots of, of, of ways of thinking about rewards. Memory becomes much less important. And lots of the things that people remember are fragmentary. So a, a really good leader is very, very good at pulling particular elements out of a national story or a, a local story and telling a coherent narrative around that. And it feels true that, you know, so we have this wonderful word, truthiness. Uh, if you can do that in, a, in an effective way, you're, I think, halfway to being a very effective political leader. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm not sure that what you didn't say was slightly contradictory, though, in that you talked about in the first half of your answer about essentially things like Wikipedia. The, the truth is out there, to coin a phrase. If you wish to seek it, you can, fi- you can find it far more easily than we ever could in the past. You mentioned in the book, actually, that a service called Our World in Data, which is a most extraordinary resource. And you say in the book, I think quite rightly, that very few people uh, interrogate their truths by reference to data in general or to Our World in Data in particular. I mean, one of the ways in which Jim and I are you know, a pair of geeks is that I suspect we use Our World in Data almost on a daily basis. So, so we, we are very different. So the availability of the truth, yep. There's a lot of it there, not not all of it. There's still an awful lot that we don't know. I would have, I would assert that that there's so much truthiness and so much untruth and so much post-truth stuff out there that it has become available. There are enough people like Trump and Boris Johnson who know how to manipulate the fact that memory is unreliable, that people don't check their facts. One of the great phrases that is used to mock conspiracy theorists and cult members and you can see it comedians do it is that they 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 say they conclude a joke with i've done my research and that's intended ironically because that's precisely what these people do not do and there was just so much out of it so the point where i think for example boris johnson has both a philosophical and and a psychological perspective on the world is that i think philosophically his 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 little learning in the classics has taught him that philosophers disagree about a lot and that there is indeed, in fact, anything out there that could be labelled the objective truth that philosophers argue about it all the time. And he also knows about this unreliability of memory and the fact that people don't check their facts and don't do their research to create, ultimately, alternative realities. He gets inside people's heads, just as Donald Trump, in a similar and different way, has done by 
convincing them. Some people would, you know, an old fashioned term would be gaslighting, uh, manipulation, uh, but essentially manipulating these psychological traits that we're discussing here, which is that we, we our, our memories are malleable, our beliefs are very malleable, and we can end up believing if we allow it, if we allow people like Johnson and Trump to do so, any old shit. Yeah, and I give a, a really good, so let's take the general example and then I'll talk about a specific example I, I address in the book. Um, I, I think, was it Adam Smith who said that there's a lot of ruin in a nation? Yes. Um, uh, a div, you know, if we were to put that in a different way, we might say there's a lot of slack uh, and a lot of the things that people believe, it doesn't really matter, you know. Uh, if a husband and wife have a kind of a folie together about the, the predictive powers of astrology, it doesn't make much difference to their everyday lives. So, you know, who's up and who's down and dancing with the stars or any of these other things that we have intense parasocial relationships with don't really matter an awful lot to our everyday lives. The, the, the problem is when the leader drives you off a cliff and that does happen. Um, so the, I give a, a simple example. You, you, you all know the phrase cognitive dissonance. So that, that phrase arose uh, from a fantastic piece of work in the 1950s by Leon Festinger who uh, addressed exactly this problem of, of prophecy by leaders and them failing. So uh, in the, the 1950s, a, a religious group in Chicago became convinced that the world was going to end on such and such a date, and they gave a very hard prediction. And remember, a demagogue who was good at his job never gives hard predictions. They, they'll give predictions about the future, but they will never say it's going to be December the 20th at 5 p.m. You know, the glorious land of milk and honey that Brexit is going to bring is 100 years away. It's, <laughs> it's not in three years' time when customs barriers are in place and there's a hit to the economy. Um, they do not make hard predictions. And religious leaders have known this forever. Don't make an empirical prediction. And uh, in the case of, of, of uh, this group, the Seekers, they made a hard prediction that the world was going to end and they attracted hundreds of people, give up their lives, sell their homes, and start to pray to stop the end of the world. And of course, December the 20th came, the flood didn't happen. They all stood there thinking, what the hell happened? So you've got this belief, you've got this behavior, you've done something, you've sold your house, you've committed yourself to a leader. The firm prediction hasn't happened. Uh, so you failed an empirical test and you have to resolve this. So that nasty feeling is the feeling of dissonance or cognitive dissonance. What you do is you rationalize. So in the case of, of the uh, people in Chicago, what they did was to say, well, actually, no, I got that first prediction wrong. What I meant was January the 30th. And January the 30th comes and goes and nothing happens. No, I meant February the 15th. Then you start to look a bit silly. So you get a new rationalization, which is that you don't make an empirical prediction. You say, actually, it didn't happen because we prayed really hard and we saved the world. How do you disprove that? It, 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 it fails. It, I've mentioned Bertrand Russell already. Russell's teapot test. You can't disprove the idea that there's a teapot in orbit somewhere around Venus. Uh, you just can't do that. It's, 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 uh, uh, and that's, I think, where the tension here re resolves itself. Demagogues are really good about promising a future. They engage in, in what I describe as mental time travel. Somewhere in the future, things will be brilliant. And they draw on these elements of the past and bring them into, this, into your present life. And they offer something. Uh, and by the time, you know, that check comes to be cashed, they're gone. Your country has been set on fire and it's all too late. Why do you think we continuously fall for it? This goes back 
my question goes back to my point about why we haven't evolved better responses to things like demagogue promises, populist promises. Demagogues and populists have been around for a very long time. We continually fall for it. I wonder. I wonder. Well, if Ireland's about Ireland's about to fall for it again with Sinn Fein. We don't know that the election hasn't happened. And, I just made a uh, prediction, a dated prediction. Well, well, my dated prediction is this: that we are going to have an increase in the number of seats in the Doyle to, I think, 180 in the next uh, election. They're riding on 34 percent of the polls, so that gives them 60 seats. If we have 190 seats or 180 seats, they're going to need 90 plus. So they may be in government if they can get two other parties to go with them, or if they can get Fine Gael to go with them. <laughs> my, my point, of course, is that we've had two great populist movements in the last few years in the UK and the United States, Brexit and Trump. And it, it, roughly speaking, half the populations of both countries fell for the populist promises of Trump and Brexit. And this is my point about lack of learning, uh, lack of evolution, if you like. We fall for it, or at least half of us do, every single time. And so my question is, those cultists in Chicago who, who were predicting with their silly predictions of a date, we all know these things have taken place. Cult-like behavior has been studied, conspiracy theories have been studied, wacky beliefs have been studied now for a very long period of time. We've had a lot of populist leaders who have led the world often into trouble, sometimes into grave disasters like the Second World War. Everybody knows this. And yet half of us at least seem more than willing to fall into the trap offered by populists every single time they offer it. Where's the learning? Where's the brain the other activity? The half of us doesn't uh, <laughs> is the obvious retort. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, there are 202 countries on the, on the planet. Roughly, what, 140 are uh, democracies. The populist plague has fallen on perhaps 10 or 15 of them uh, and it, in differing ways. And remember, the U.S. voted for Trump because of an accident. If they had no electoral college, no Trump. And the U.K. was, I think, just unlucky. Uh, these things happen. But there's a lot of ruin in a nation. Uh, Shane, can I ask you a, a very practical question? I, I, I have a very good friend who's an independent councillor in South Dublin County Council, OK? He'll be, I canvass for him. He'll be running for re-election next summer. So I'll probably be out canvassing for him again. And you, you, you mentioned you touch in on um, how to change minds, and you talk about deep canvassing, how you change people's positions, the correct approach to take. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So uh, there's a actually a, a, a great science coming together around deep canvassing from a variety of different directions. It comes from clinical psychology and how you interact with patients when they're, they're undergoing therapy. It comes from medicine, uh, when you're working with patients who have difficult stories to tell. And it also comes from the political science kind of area about how to how to change minds and votes. And it also, bizarrely enough, comes from the kind of human rights drive to engage in investigative interviewing of, a, of an ethical sort. And it, it hinges on a simple idea. And uh, the idea is straightforward. And it's one that you have to be taught how to do. Because <laughs> we have this system one, I must respond to the stupid thing that I've just been told. No, you don't. Uh, what, what, what you do uh, when you're engaging in deep canvassing is you don't put your point of view forward. You allow the other person to state what it is they believe. You talk to them in a respectful way about why they believe what they believe. And in particular, you try and explore what they see as the dangers, the issues as they see it. So... 
you know, for example, with, uh, we had the equal right to marriage referendum as, a, as, as an example. If somebody was opposed to allowing equal rights to marriage, I, I, a place to start is to get them to articulate why. Not say you're wrong, but say, tell us why you think this. You know, because people might believe it for what they think of as reasonable reasons. It turns out that actually when you explore those reasons, well, maybe the fears that they've expressed turn out not to be empirically grounded. Uh, it may turn out that uh, there are all sorts of reasons why they, they might have opposed something, but it turns out that that might be on the basis of a misbelief. But you can only get people to change what they think on the basis of meeting them in their terms. Uh, so you, uh, this is where deep canvassing can go very wrong. It needs to be trained. You need to be able to work with somebody who's shouting, who's angry, uh, who's got an issue about X and it turns out X has got nothing to do with anything. I'm going to vote against you because you're the government and I hate you, but that's got nothing to do with equal rights uh, to marriage. Well, actually it does because I hate the government and they're sponsoring this. How you frame how people think about things in the conversation turns out to be absolutely vitally important. You know, when I think about the people who come around knocking on my door looking for votes, none of them are trained. None of them have a clue what they're doing. You know, they, they go, here's here's a, here's our leaflet. Uh, would you consider giving me the number one? Uh, you know, all of that kind of thing. And that's not a very good approach. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the, the two most recent constitutional uh, referendums that we had, it's very clearly the case that uh, the canvassers were trained they had been working in this issue and this domain for a very, very long period of time, and they were very good at uh, answering your questions. Whereas the, I, I found the people who were opposed to change actually came at it from a point of view that said, no, we're, we, we want to continue to restrict particular rights. And they didn't have a good answer, uh, at least in, in my experience. So the, the deep canvassing thing has, has been tried in the US on the basis of field trials in quite a, a number of US states. And it turns out if you meet people halfway, if you engage in this uh, difficult thing to do of rapport where you listen really carefully to what people are saying and you treat them with respect, you can often, not always, by any means, because people have a right not to change their mind, <laughs> but very often you can get people to take a different view. But it has to come down to this issue of being heard in conversation. That flies in stark contrast to all of the developments that we've had in social media in recent years, of course, in which that's a, a dialogue of the deaf. That's a shouty rather than a listening environment. And I know, Shane, from privately, I think that you have left Twitter relatively recently. Yeah, so I think absolutely. Delighted that, I did. <laughs> that process that you just described there offers some hope to those of us that despair that dialogue can still happen. Uh, a listening form of dialogue can still happen. I, I think there's a change actually slowly occurring in, in social media in the background. I think the newsletter revolution of the last couple of years is, is, a, is a really important one where, and Substack is one of the leaders, but there are lots of others uh, in this area where it's not driven by clicks. It, the desire to grab your attention is, is, is not driven by advertising. It's driven by other incentives. And I think that is, is slowly turning out to be, a, to be a good thing. And of course, we've always had a kind of a, a form of what we might call thick interaction through books in particular. Books as a, as a medium have been around for 600 years, I guess. And you can pick up a book, you go into the long room in Trinity and you can pick up a book from 1500 and you can read it and you can understand it. But, you know, pick up 
a tweet from 20 years ago <laughs> or 10 years ago, whenever Twitter, uh, you know, it's gone. The half-life of a tweet is, is uh, maybe of the order of, of seconds and it angries up the blood, as, as Abe Simpson would say. Yes. But uh, it doesn't do much more than that. And most people aren't on Twitter. You know, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. We have to remind you know. ourselves of that. I, Shane, we're, we're, I'm very conscious of time, and I want to leave the last word to Jim because, as usual, I've had too many words. Um, and go back, go back to your book, which is partly the point of this podcast, and talk about the way in which conversation happens, and in particular, uh, the way in which conversation has helped shape the nation state. As I've got two questions, really. One a very specific one, and one a quite general one. In the earlier part of the book, when you talk about the way in which we talk, converse with, with each other, I was struck by a particular passage which talked about the way in which our brains move or act to start predicting what is coming next in the conversation. And that reminded me very much of the large language models that are out there now in terms of generative AI. Do you think that generative AI is moving in the direction of the brain? No. No, I, I, I think it's, uh, as uh, one of the analysts call it, it's, it's a stochastic parrot. It's uh, <laughs> the text that's produced by generative AI is the center of gravity of what it's learned from scouring public sources on the internet. It, it, it's a little bit weird and uh, it's a little bit off. I think it can be enormously useful under constraint. So, you know, if you... Uh, want to generate something and you say, I want to come up with five bullet points on X, given the following pieces of information, uh, then it, it can be useful. But you need to take it with a grain of salt because all you're doing is, is getting what's out there on the public internet. For example, with uh, ChatGPT, it's not plugged in to all the academic journals that are hidden behind paywalls. So it's not been trained on any of those things. And I, I've, I've put my own papers into it to see uh, what it comes up with, and it comes up with nonsense. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if I take an abstract of, of, of something I've published and I, I, I say, tell me what this is about, it will come up with statements that are untrue. It, it, as they say, it hallucinates because what it's doing is trying to find a, 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 a center of gravity between all of these different words that it's learned. And often those words don't, or those sentences don't have any empirical reference. So no, the, the, the LLMs, I think we shouldn't worry about at all. In that context, there's, you know, there are human rights issues to worry about with LLMs. You know, the, the people who train uh, them are, are exposed to material, which may be absolutely uh, appalling. Uh, there are other issues to do with images and how they're trained. You know, there's all of those kinds of things, but they're near and present you know, this idea that AI is going to eat us in, in 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> I think, honestly, let's stop worrying I, about I, something in the future. I must say, I've been on a journey happens. not dissimilar to the one you described there. I really fell for it when it came, when it all broke last autumn. And I'm just struck now every every single time, and I, I mean every single time, I interrogate either ChatGPT or BARD, Google's version of, 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 the, of an LM, LLM, uh, it gets something quite major wrong. Bing is quite good um, if you set it to the, the, the most strict level of setting and you tell it, find me the relevant reference to the literature, and then you can go and look at that reference. And I, I, I think when it's constrained, it's actually not bad. Well, I reached the point where I said, to, I asked Bard a question the other day about something or other, and I put at the end of my prompt, as they're called, don't make the answer up. So I, I told it not to do that. And it, it came back with, I am a large language model. I can't do that. 
I can't not make stuff up. So that was interesting. Sorry, my last question on the nation state. You talk a lot about that and the way conversation has shaped our national uh, identities and how that interacts. And I can't do justice to the uh, rather wonderful way in which you describe all of that. But the question that I thought was begged by your discussion of the nation state was just, and it goes back to my point about where, why can't we learn? Why are we not rational? Why have we not evolved a better thinking process? The nation state is clearly a daft idea. Nationalism is the root of so many evils. Why do we, Why have we not learned that the nation state is something that we should abandon? I think we can't. Uh, I think the nation state is something that arises because of our common biology. I, I think it would be nice to pretend uh, it's something that we can get rid of. But the reality is, uh, when you look back through human history, it's been a contest of, of, for resources, it's been a contest for territory, and it's been a contest for minds. And our brains are built in particular ways that define self, define other, define ours, uh, define the spatial extent of our world, all of those kinds of things. However, uh, and, I, and I give the example in the book, consider chimpanzees and consider orangutans. We're very closely related to both of them. Um, but orangutans and chimpanzees do not vote. They do not engage in deliberative assemblies. They do not bind themselves to rules that they will apply in the future. And chimps are profoundly aggressive toward each other. They're, they're aggressive within their troops uh, but they're really, really aggressive toward other troops. Inter-chimpanzee war is really common, and they're about 30 times as aggressive toward each other as, as uh, we humans are. They all have bite marks, they've broken limbs, all of that kind of thing. On the other hand, orangutans uh, are really asocial. They don't come together very often, except for the purposes of reproduction. So they haven't created large-scale societies. And I, you know, Tokyo is the example I use in the book, 40 million people in an area about the size of Leinster, and it works very smoothly most of the time, like 99.9% of the time. So I, I, I don't take the counsel of despair that you occasionally reach for, Chris, uh, in <laughs> terms of why haven't we? I think actually the existence of our cities uh, is a really good counterexample to the why haven't we? Well, well, we have, and we've built things like libraries, and we have public health infrastructures to do with waste handling, and we have public transport, which may could be better, but we have a whole lot of things that we've done in a comparatively short space of time. You know, go back 200 years, our life expectancy was 30 or 40. Even in Ireland, as, as we look at it today, the average male gets to about 82. All you need to do is go back to the early 60s, and the average male got to about 65. We, we've added the guts of two decades of, of uh, healthy living uh, in a very, very short space of time, within the space of a, of a, of a human lifespan. Um, and this is because of education and literacy. I think you're looking at the fast-moving variables, but if you look at these slow-moving things, they actually do make a, a really big difference as well. D don't worry, I, I, I don't despair. And um, Good. <laughs> I, I, I am aware of the data that you described there. And indeed, um, you're, you're definitely aware of the work of Steve Pinker, who has yeah. described an awful lot of this data in, in many different books, in many different ways about how things are in fact getting better. Uh, but it makes for a more fun conversation when I pretend to to, to, to to have that counsel of despair. Jim, I'll leave the final word to you. Yeah, I'll just wrap up, Shane. Listen, thanks a million for that. Um, I guess the purpose of <clears throat> inviting you onto the podcast was to talk about your book, which is named after one of my favorite groups, Talking Heads. 
Um, uh, there's a couple of things that jump out at me, you know, how conversations change cultures and how nations are ultimately built by brains. So I think for anybody interested in the brain and how it impacts on life, uh, this is a must read, as is your regular Substack uh, contribution, Brain Pizza. So listen, Shane, on behalf of Chris and myself and the Other Hand Podcast, thanks a million for giving us a lot of your time today and uh, the very best of luck with um, book sales. I, I guess I'm going to go away next and read your book on walking. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was really enjoyable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.